Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 122. Today's big Bible question, how is the Word of God living and active? How can words even be alive? So happy Wednesday, friends. Today, we in sunny Central California are celebrating an astounding six weeks of sheltering in place, and it looks like a few more weeks on tap. Uh, I guess actually celebrating is the wrong word here. We are lamenting six weeks of sheltering in place. Lord, deliver us from this pandemic. Today's Bible readings don't have anything to do with coronavirus, thankfully, but do equip us to live and thrive in times of pandemic trials and troubles. We are reading Numbers chapter 6, Psalms 40 and 41, Song of Songs chapter 4, and Hebrews 4. And our big Bible question comes from the famous and well-known verse in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So many Christians grew up hearing that passage fairly regularly. It's a Sunday morning favorite, but when you actually think about what it means, you sort of realize what a strange statement it is. How in the world is the Word of God a living thing, a sharp thing, a penetrating thing, or a judging thing? Well, let's go read Hebrews 4 and then see if we can find out more. Hebrews 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us be let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news, just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the reason, for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And we're back. And we haven't had our question answered fully, at least not yet in Hebrews 4. We do remember, however, that Hebrews begins in chapter 1 by discussing the power of God's word. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son, Jesus, 
is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, all things we learn here are sustained by the powerful word of Jesus. Further, we keep reading in Hebrews and we get to Hebrews 11.3 and it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So this, beyond a shadow of a doubt, demonstrates the awesome power of the word of God, but it doesn't quite answer our question. How is God's word living and active or living and effective, as the CSB says? For that answer, we need to turn back a few books in the Bible to the parable of Jesus that is effectively the key to understanding every parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower. And if we go back to Mark 4 and start in verse 13, this is what Jesus says. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Earlier, Jesus had compared the word of God to a seed. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundred times what was sown. So here we see pretty much precisely how God's word is living and active, because Jesus tells us that the word of God is like a seed. In other words, it has life, and it gives life, and it brings life. It blooms and grows inside a person, just like a seed blooms and grows inside of the earth. But instead of being sown or buried in the ground, the word of God is sown into people who listen to it and bear fruit, depending on how they respond to the seed slash word of God. Also, from that same chapter, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Here we see that the word of God, or living seed, comes into a person by virtue of that person hearing or reading God's word. The more you hear, the more you read, the more you want to hear, the more fruit you will bear, and the more godly transformation you will see in your life. So Jesus here compares eager listeners to the word of God, and eager readers, I think as well, to those coming to get something good with either a very small measure, you know, like a teaspoon or something, or something uh, or a person that comes with a very large measure, like a great big old bucket. The one who desires more of the word, a greater measure, says Jesus, will see more fruit in their lives than those who just want a drop or two. Finally, in verses 26 through 29, we see, The kingdom of God is like this, Jesus said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises at night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. We see here 
that the Word of God is the thing that brings transformation and change in people. They aren't changed by their own wills. They're not changed by the work of the pastor or the teacher or a particularly good sermon with good illustrations that the pastor made up. They're changed because the Word of God is being spoken. The Word of God is being read. The Word of God is being heard. And it is living like a seed. And it went, when it gets into the soil of our lives, minds, hearts, and, and emotions, it brings growth, transformation, and salvation. This is what is meant when it is said that the Word of God is living and active. It's not like mere words on paper, because it is, as we learned in Timothy, God-breathed. My words are chase-breathed. They might be memorable, they might be funny, they might be awkward or random or strange. They might be accompanied by bad breath, or they might be said while I'm itching my nose, because I do have the world's itchiest nose, but they most certainly won't be God-breathed and living unless I am, perchance, quoting the Word of God. My words don't have life or bring life. They're just words. God's words, on the other hand, created all that is. And also they bring transformation to reality and to human beings alike. Now, I love how Tim Keller expresses the biological nature of God's word. In a sermon he preached a few years ago, Keller says, I want you to think about the image Jesus has chosen for the word of God, for the gospel. Even though, by the way, he could, because these are used in the Old Testament, he could use an image like the word of God is a hammer, the word of God is a fire, or the word of God is a sword. But he chooses a seed. And on the surface, a seed is a weak little thing. You don't drop a seed into the ground saying bombs away because you drop a seed and you can't even find the seed after you drop it. Three out of the four soils in Jesus' parable of the sower reject the power of the word. The first one doesn't let it in at all. The second one is excited about Jesus, but really just wants miracles, really wants good times. The third group is very concerned about what the world thinks and about the issues of the world, and it gets choked. The seed is weak. It's not like a hammer. It's not a fire. A hammer crushes its opposition. Fire blasts the opposition. The sword slashes through the resistance. The seed on the surface seems so weak. Why would Jesus Christ characterize the gospel and the word of God as something so weak? If we think a little bit more about the metaphor, let's admit seeds do have a paradoxical weakness and strength. Here's an acorn. What's an acorn? On the one hand, the acorn is in the acorn is everything necessary to grow a huge tree. And then out of that tree could come hundreds of other acorns. Out of every one of those trees could come hundreds of other acorns. Do you realize a single acorn has the power in it to cover the entire face of the earth in wood? No hammer, no fire, no sword has the power to do that. And yet you could stick that acorn on the ground and crush it and it's gone. G. Campbell Morgan tells an interesting story, says Keller. He was in Italy once and he went to a graveyard. It was a kind of a tourist attraction because there was one very, very old grave, centuries old. It was either a king or a very wealthy man. And there was this enormous, incredibly thick slab of marble over the grave. It was huge and thick, yet an acorn at some point in the distant past had fallen into the grave. Over the years, somehow it had grown up, found a way out of the one side, then got bigger and bigger and bigger. It took centuries. Eventually, it became this huge tree. Over the centuries, it had cracked that marble slab and rolled it off into two pieces. 
Everybody used to come and see that. Isn't it amazing? An acorn, something if you dropped it on the slab, it would never would have done such a thing. You can just stamp it out with your foot. And yet if you give it a chance to release its power, because it's living, it can do something a team of horses couldn't do. Why does Jesus characterize the word of God, the gospel, as a seed? Here's the reason why. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark up to this point, some people have pointed out every single soil is somebody's response to Jesus. The first soil is the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They rejected him. The second soil is the crowds. They're happy with him, but only as long as he's doing miracles. The third soil is his family, who's very upset with the fact that they're losing face and the fact of the shame and the fact that they're losing honor because of what he's doing and people thinking he's crazy. In other words, the parable of the soils is not just a parable of how people respond to the word, but how people respond to Jesus. And Jesus did not come as a hammer. Jesus did not come as a fire. Jesus did not come as a sword. He came not to judge, but to be judged, not to be strong, but to be weak and die, because seeds only release their power if they fall into the ground and die. If Jesus had come as a sword, if he had come as a hammer, if he'd come as a fire, we would have all been dead meat. But Jesus came as the ultimate seed. He says it himself in John 12, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus Christ was to go to the cross, he was facing infinite suffering. He was facing cosmic abandonment. He was going to pay the penalty for our sins. Even the foretaste of that, even the hint of it, the prospect of it, smote the eternal God to the ground in such shock that blood came out of his pores. He looks up to heaven and says, is there any other way? The answer of heaven is, my life cannot be released into them unless you become a seed, unless you go into the ground and died. And he did. He became voluntarily weak for us. He became a seed that goes into the ground and dies, but that is the secret of the gospel's power. Because the power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. When you see him doing that for you, if you see him doing that for you, if you see the beauty of his weakness that comes into your life, that's the power that will change you. The weakness of the Lord is the power of the word. Nothing else will change you like that. Nothing else will change you like seeing the beauty of his weakness for you, his willingness to be the ultimate seed. So, answering our question for today's podcast, how is the word of God like a seed? Well, It's living and active. And when it gets into a person, when we listen to it, especially when we listen to it with eagerness and intentionality, and we take it as daily bread, it is going to bring life and transformation into us. It is going to grow faith in us like a seed growing into a giant acorn tree because faith comes by hearing the word of God. So the word of God has life. It brings life, and when it gets inside of us on a consistent and deep basis, it will bring transformation, salvation, fruit, and glorification. And that is how the Word of God is a living and active thing. Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, The Lord instructed Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When a man or woman takes a special vow, a Nazarite vow, to consecrate himself to the Lord, He is to abstain from wine and beer. He must not drink vinegar made from wine or from beer. He must not drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins. 
He is not to eat anything produced by the grapevine from seeds to skin during the period of his consecration. You must not cut his hair throughout the time of his vow vow of consecration. He may be holy until the time is completed during which he consecrates himself to the Lord. He is to let the hair of his head grow long. He must not go near a dead body during the time he consecrates himself to the Lord. He is not to defile himself for his father or his mother or brother or sister when they die, while the mark of consecration to his God is on his head. He is holy to the Lord during the time of consecration. If someone suddenly dies near him, defiling his consecrated head, he must shave his head on the day of his purification. He is to shave it on the seventh day. On the eighth day, he is to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement on behalf of the Nazarite since he incurred guilt because of the corpse. On that day, he is to consecrate his head again. He is to rededicate his time of consecration to the Lord and bring a year-old lamb as a guilt offering, but do not count the initial period of consecration because it became defiled. This is the law of the Nazarite. On the day of his time of consecration is completed, he is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to present an offering to the Lord of one unblemished year-old male lamb as a burnt offering, one unblemished year-old female lamb as a sin offering, one unblemished ram as a fellowship offering, along with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of unleavened cakes made from fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened watt wafers coated with oil. The priest is to present these before the Lord and sacrifice the Nazarite sin offering and burnt offering. He will also offer the ram as a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened bread. Then the priest will offer the accompanying grain offering and drink offering. The Nazarite is to shave his consecrated head at the entrance to the tent of meeting, take the hair from his head, and put it on the fire under the fellowship sacrifice. The priest is to take the boiled shoulder from the ram, one leavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them into the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. The priest is to present them as a presentation offering before the Lord. It is a holy portion for the priest in addition to the breast of the presentation offering and the thigh of the contribution. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. These are the institutions about the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord for his consecration in addition to whatever else he can afford. He must fulfill whatever vow he makes in keeping with the instructions for his consecration. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you were to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites, and I will bless them. Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord? and is not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord my God, you have done many things, your wondrous works and your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, See, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. 
I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, please be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be turned back and humiliated. Let those who say to me, Aha, aha, be appalled because of their shame. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, The Lord is great. I am oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. Psalm chapter 41, verse 1. Happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him. He will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. I said, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak maliciously about me. When will he die and be forgotten? When one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart. He goes out and talks. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan something to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, then I will repay them. By this I know that your delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen, amen. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling, how very beautiful. Behind your veil your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet cord, and your mouth is lovely behind your veil. Your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards, you have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes and with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. My sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden in a sealed spring. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, 
with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all the best spices, you are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. Awaken, north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And friends, let me end with the blessing of numbers. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Amen and Godspeed.